When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Peter Pinkasov of the Real Vision Exchange. I am lucky enough to be joined by my two, lucky enough to call them friends here, uh, Weston Nakamura, who is also a Real Vision uh, employee here. He's a Real, a Real Vision Exchange superstar, uh, host of a new show on his YouTube channel as well. And then I'm joined by Samuel Rines, who is a former hedge fund trader, uh, current economist. Uh, guys, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Weston, uh, I think you don't need any intro just yet, but I'm going to give Samuel the mic here just to give himself a five-minute intro about uh, kind of who he is. But before we do that, let me just talk about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, first on the agenda, the uh, Senate passed $1 trillion infrastructure bill. We're going to talk a little bit about global rates, what that means. The Aussie two-year absolutely exploded. And we're going to talk about Elon Musk, how he's planning to sell off 10% of his stock because of an unrealized gains tax. Samuel, do you want to give a quick intro about yourself? Sure. I'm Samuel Rines, down in Houston, Texas. Uh, spent the first part of my career working in hedge funds, uh, long-short technology, uh, general global macro, a uh, little bit of long only, uh, and then moved to being a global macroeconomist and investment strategy with a large uh, private wealth manager, uh, and uh, moving on to uh, bigger and better things uh, to be announced later this uh, later this year. Uh, so, uh, fun and exciting times. You can find me at Samuel Rhines on Twitter. Excellent. And um, Samuel, any general thoughts? One trillion infrastructure passed. Some people say it's a drop in the bucket. Some people say it's a very big deal. What are your thoughts here? I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a, you know, call it $27 trillion economy. You're going to spend a trillion dollars over the better part of a decade. Doesn't matter that much. I mean, yeah, it's a big $1 trillion Sounds like a big number. Uh, really isn't. Uh, whatever kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it will be somewhat of a mover for some equities, particularly uh, things that are call it closely associated with uh, infrastructure, bridges, roads, that type of deal. Uh, but generally, uh, we need those things. Uh, the infrastructure in the U.S. is kind of crap, uh, so we do need uh, to upgrade those. Uh, we should probably, you know, now that we know, spend a little more money on ports. Uh, maybe reallocate some of those dollars over there. Uh, so, you know, it's a big deal when it comes to maybe getting our infrastructure a little bit better. It's a very small deal when it comes to, call it, quote-unquote, juicing the economy moving forward. Wesson, um, off the top of your head, what are you thinking trade-wise on an infrastructure deal? What are you looking at? Um, the, uh, maybe I'm just too stupid, but the uh, there is no infrastructure trade because been priced in for how long at this point? Um, since before, you know, when since people were looking at polls between Biden versus Trump, um, and all it kept doing was just getting whittled down and kind of like still hanging in there, still hanging in there. I'll put it this way: if the if the infrastructure bill didn't go through um, with, you know, uh, Democrats running uh, both houses. Um, 
of of Congress, um, as well as you know, out of the Oval. And if that fell through, then there's a trade. Then there's many trades um, to unwind. But for now, I think it's just largely priced in. You got to pop in Caterpillar and all that. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really see anything like like you said too. Drop in the bucket. Um, I thought maybe something on the rate side as well, which we can get into later. But really, nothing there either. So. Um, this is really just as business as, as usual as it is. It's kind of incredible when you're spending a, you know, into the trillions and that's just kind of expected. Yeah. And it's funny because the market cap of, I haven't checked it, but I'm guessing the increase in Tesla probably matches <laughs> the contribution to the S and P in terms of nominal dollars of how much we just went up. So, um, yeah, it does feel a little bit like a drop in the bucket, especially now. Samuel, I wanted to ask you because, um, Weston just brought up, um, uh, Caterpillar, maybe some industrial trades. I think copper is a pretty close tie to the industrial trade as well. Do you have any thoughts on maybe not broad commodities, but specifically on the copper side? How much do you think that might be driven, the, the you know, price surges, et cetera, might be driven by something like a, um, a uh, infrastructure bill? Uh, almost none. I mean, it, it, there may be a knee-jerk reaction, very, very short term. It's maybe a very fast trade there, but in the long run, nothing really. Uh, what's far more interesting on the copper front is what's going on in China, whether or not they're re-accelerating or decelerating uh, their real estate uh, and infrastructure uh, investment. And we you know, have a pretty good feeling that that's not going to happen in the near term, uh, given the headlines we've seen out of Evergrande at all. Uh, on the real estate front. So I, I don't think there's much of a trade in copper or the broad commodity complex based on a trillion dollar U.S. infrastructure bill. Sounds good. Well, I think we the consensus is hard to find a good trade. So let's just move on from that one. Uh, let's move on to global rates. Before we move on to that one, um, the key narrative around rates is inflation. Inflation is a very big contributor to where prices on bonds move. And on the uh, essential tier today, we had, uh, I guess we had uh, Murray Stahl come on and talk a little bit about inflation, what it means for fixed income, and especially in the energy space, what divestment in that space means right now. So check it out. This is on the essential tier. Inflation, I think it's more than just money supply. There are many factors structurally that are leading us to inflation. So I really believe we've hit a point of no return. And I think we're going to have a lot of inflation. Oil is more than just inflation. Obviously, it is inflation. But um, the problem is for at least 12 years, maybe more, the world has not properly invested in the infrastructure to maintain hydrocarbon production. Mm. And I don't think most people realize how enormous infrastructural requirements really are. Those expenditures are in the hundreds of billions of dollars globally per year. And we have a parallel divestment movement. So believe it or not, there are literally thousands of institutions that have pledged never to buy a hydrocarbon producing company again, never to finance one. And what they have left, they intend to sell. So the S&P 500 is now roughly, I might be a little off, two and a half percent weighted in energy. So it's become a contrarian investment and yet, I don't know how we can run society without it. So there you have it. That was on the essential tier. Murray Stahl joining us to talk a little bit about inflation and divestment in the energy space. Now, Samuel, you being down in Houston, energy divestment is obviously probably one of the biggest things to think about 10, 20, 30 years out in your municipality. What are your general thoughts there? And it's specifically how it might tie to inflation. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So you're likely to, and we've seen significant investment across the majors uh, in the U.S. and globally. But what we haven't seen is any major divestment among the independents or the uh, call them private, uh, large private uh, oil companies. I think that's the transition that you're probably that some people are probably missing on the margins is that when you're divesting, you're selling to somebody. Um, and that somebody is really interested in making a profit and really interested in, um, I call it extracting uh, oil, natural gas, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, so while it gets a lot of headlines on the divestment front, what uh, I'm paying very close attention to is what the smaller independents are doing. Uh, you've seen the rig count tick up significantly uh, over the last uh, month or so. I would suspect that's going to continue with these prices uh, and what the private guys are doing. Uh, those There is some capital that's beginning to trickle back in there on the investor front. Um, if you continue to have some significant returns out of traditional oil and gas, uh, it's going to be difficult for people to, quote unquote, avoid those uh, going forward. Uh, so I think it's, it is going to be a little bit of a, uh, I would call it, uh, it adds volatility to inflation. Uh, significant volatility because you don't have the immediate reaction to prices uh, that you've typically had uh, from the oil and gas patch over time. Interesting. Weston, any thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, I can't stand up against um, an actual expert, so no, I can't try there. <laughs> so You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe the outperformance might even for the first time in a long while, I guess, might be in some of those smaller cap, um, non. The, the, the kind of energy companies that don't have huge boards, that don't have ESG kind of standards being shoved down their throats at the moment and try to divest as much assets. They're actually on the opposite side, taking on more leverage at higher prices, actually doing that investment. So it's an interesting proposition. Let's move on to rates. I mean, Aussie two-year caused absolute havoc. BOE caused absolute havoc. I think a lot, a lot of you know uh, hedge funds, trading pods, et cetera, big shops have had big, you know, Risk put aside, some people shut down, whatever. There's just a lot of volatility on that space. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, Weston, can you tell the story about what happened on the Aussie two-year, maybe, or the BOE as well, just to get people caught up? Yeah, sure. So this is something that, um, so uh, I, for those who, um, you know, maybe haven't realized, uh, I've been doing um, some videos on the Real Vision YouTube channel. Uh, the last one that I did was just basically warning about not to put too much emphasis on the FOMC from last week, going into last week, um, and more so that the banks of, you know, the central banks of, of consequence going into last week were the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and the Bank of England. The RBA at the front end mostly, um, and the BOE at the long end, but obviously, you know, for both as well. But especially at the at the front end of the curve, yeah. So Aussie uh, two years or three year rates were um, just uh, you know, I mean, it was a historic move the the week before. Um, so Australia, the, the RBA has had yield curve control in place. Um, now they were trying to essentially tame their rates, but they kind of threw in the towel 
and they didn't fight back when um, you know that uh, was an April 2024 um, issuance had had just blown through uh, their level. But back in February of this year, this is the, this is the first time they actually had like an actual fight with the bond market. Um, and as somebody who's been stuck, you know, watching Bank of Japan, you know, do yield curve control, you know, just step in, bid for unlimited until you know yields calm down. Um, so the RBA was kind of struggling in in, on, in February to to control their their yield, and that was like a Friday, and it looked like they kind of threw in the towel. Then on Monday, RBA comes in, takes a sledgehammer down, and and re you know asserts themselves into the into the bond market. So this time, I thought that going into RBA on Tuesday, last Tuesday, I thought that they were going to come in and just you know put the you know Philip Lowe's going to come down, put his boot down on the ground and say, you know, we are, you know, Australia, we are a serious economy or a major, you know, integral to the global economy. We, uh, the Australian dollar is a powerful currency and, you know, you don't mess around with the Commonwealth of Australia and smack rates down, but that's not what he did. Um, they gave up on yield curve control. Um, and this was not something that was planned or, you know, discussed beforehand. This was clearly the markets that had pushed them into that position. And they even said so. They said that, you know, this is, um, we, we are we're, we're not guided by markets, but we more or less are. Um, that's not verbatim. Then on the other side, you have the Bank of England, who essentially, for all intents and purposes, they jawboned in a rate hike, um, and they did not, they did not deliver on that. <laughs> And that just shocked markets, um, and you just saw rates um, just just plummet. And the- well, why why is that? Was that because everybody is waiting for the Fed to do something first? I just want to give Samuel a chance to put. Th- th- thank you, Wes. I want to give Samuel a chance to chime yeah. in though on this one. Samuel, what do you think? Was it because uh, oh. BOE was waiting for the Fed to kind of do something first? Was that why? I think it was. It's a little bit of the the BOE wanted to inject some uncertainty into monetary policy, right? They wanted to begin to have some ability to raise rates in the future, and they went way overboard with their "quote unquote" forward guidance. Right? Forward guidance is supposed to be something that's a useful tool, uh, not something that's a market disruptive tool. And they just brought it way too far. They overshot. Uh, they were never going to raise rates at that meeting, right? That was that was going to be a problem. I mean, it was a seven to two vote. It wasn't even like there was a real argument there. There were only two people that were like, "Yeah, we should probably be raising rates now." Uh, so I would say they want the Fed to raise rates first, or at least be a little more hawkish and have that tapering going before they raise rates. But there's no way they're waiting for the Fed to raise rates in late 22, early 23. Um, you know, according to Clarita this morning, there's no way they're waiting that long. They just want a little more hawkishness out there for, you know, in the global central bank uh, market uh, so that they don't call it, you know, push their currency too far and absolutely crush uh, inflation expectations, et cetera, right? They want to take it a little bit slower. And the market had just pushed so far ahead uh, with it that there was no way that the BOE could do anything other than uh, be slightly or very dovish as they were uh, into that meeting. Interesting. And you mentioned the Clarida comments. Do you think those have any materiality in the medium term? Uh, I, I mean, it's a, you know, Clarida has had three speeches. He said, the exact same thing in three straight speeches, uh, which is you know by late 2022, 
uh, we should have a labor force participation rate and he demographically adjusts it, whatever, whatever he means by that. Um, and you know, I know what he means by that, but whatever metric they're using for that, uh, and the employment to population ratio should be back to what would be consistent with full employment. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of what ifs in there, but you know, he's basically guiding that late 2022 is kind of the stake in the ground for the fed at this point. Now, all of these interest rate events, I think, have manifested themselves into some really, really interesting price action into U.S. Treasuries, I think partially because of what we just talked about. A lot of people are looking for what the Fed or ECB might even do. And we've been seeing the interest rate curve go from a complete steepener last week. Today, we flattened out completely, which creates a lot of interesting opportunities. Samuel, uh, any general views on the U.S. Treasury market in the medium term? Oof. In the in the medium term, uh, let's, let's say let's, uh, <laughs> let's say five days out. Five days. That's a, the medium term. <laughs> that, is, that is that's an interesting medium term. Uh, five days <laughs> out. <laughs> five that's the macro out. traders special. The medium term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the curve is tough to trade at this point. Not you know on a particularly on a five day. I think on a you know intraday and you know one or two day basis it's really interesting. But the problem right now is that you have the confluence of two things. Unwinding a lot of trades that everyone was caught in. And there's a lot of noise hitting markets uh, with that. And the hawkish ish language coming out of global central banks, which is we're going to quote unquote kill inflation. Uh, that's largely on the supply side. We're going to be in front of this, et cetera, et cetera. Slowing economies, blah blah blah. A little bit of COVID thrown in there. So, you know, through the noise, it's probably a flattener. Um, but you know, you're going to have days where the flatteners get ripped off sides. Yeah. Preston, any thoughts on U.S. Treasuries before we uh, merge into the Elon and crypto space? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I so. Basically, in um, going into the October FO, I'm sorry, the uh, end of September FOMC and subsequent Bank of England um, uh, monetary policy, you had that meeting um, FOMC. You had no change in markets from right before uh, what 60 seconds before the policy was announced. Uh, it, the, the policy was announced at uh, 2 p.m. And then at market close, it was literally a, a, a one percentage, uh, not percentage point, one point difference in SPX, rates were flat, VIX was 21, ended at 21, all that. Bank of England comes in less than, you know, what, like 18 hours later or whatever, uh, talking very hawkishly about this past meeting. And they send yields, global yields, you know, surging throughout October. And then when they come in, they essentially had um, for the you know UK tenure guilt side at least they had essentially brought that back down to its pre you know October surge levels. So if uh, indeed the U.S. Treasury like from the tenure uh, tenor and on, if those are being driven by largely from the UK guilt market and the Bank of England because everyone knows more or less what the Fed is going to do and that's kind of priced in, they're not going to shock anyone like the Bank of England is. If that's the case, the bank of the you know UK gilt yields are basically back to around those levels, but the U.S. Treasury yield does have a lot more to fall. Now I don't think that they are going to be moving tick for tick, but if they do sort of just have to reset back to those levels of unchanged from uh, September FOMC, 
Um, I mean, you're looking at a what, 1.35 uh, on the tenure, somewhere around there. So, um, yeah, but but it largely is to those like just a whole bunch of macro hedge funds getting blown up, um, you know, over the past, uh, you know, and I, I don't think that that's that's an unwind that was aggressive, that was forced. But just because they're, the forced ones are done does not mean that the ones that are not forced but still want to be unwound um, are, are done either. <laughs> sure. They're they are, yeah. they are taking yeah. their time. Um, but your year's coming to an end. Bonus season's almost almost here, um, so they'll probably be getting on that pretty quickly. So I, I think that you'll probably see more sort of disconnected moves and more rate volatility. Makes a lot of sense in, in the five-day medium term. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for the clarification on the time frame. Um, let's move on to Elon Musk, guys. So he went on Twitter, complained about how. Uh, the what is it the the uh, capital gains tax for unrealized gains is like you know not fair or something so he's like so he's, so he's saying I should sell ten percent of my Tesla stock because of it now often when I read that I think wow this is such a good excuse for somebody who's just looking at a paper gain of a trillion dollars <laughs> they're talking about taxing unrealized gains and he says okay, I should sell, and I'll do a Twitter poll to, you know, basically justify it. Um, I'll let anybody jump in on this one. Samuel, what do you think? Um, what's going on with this with this tweet? Do you think he's actually is he bluffing, or do you think he's, it's a chance for him to actually sell some stock here? I mean, if, if I were him, I would take it as a chance to sell some stock, right? You are He does have a tax bill coming due next year, which is going to be, you know, non-trivial. Um, uh, it also gives him some liquidity. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad move, and it is somewhat of a hedge against you know being a forced seller if there is some sort of unrealized wealth tax, which I I don't think there will be anytime soon in the U.S. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. At these prices, though, Weston, maybe you can jump in on this one after. Doesn't it just make absolute sense for Tesla yes. just to do a raise, like a raise, hard raise right now, <laughs> and they'll be cash loaded for the next, what, three, four years? Tim, go ahead, jump in. I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense if you think they can sell a significant chunk of stock at that valuation, right? I would, I would think that you'd probably get, uh, you know, call it a, you know, a haircut, a significant haircut on any sort of significant capital raise out of there, and you know, how much, you know, how much equity are they going to raise? Ten billion, twenty billion? You know, that's, you know, that's going to be, you know, kind of whatever. Um, yeah. You know, it's a whole new anything. battery factory, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole new battery factory, but financing the battery factory, you know, isn't that difficult, right? I mean, it's very, very cheap to go out and you know use your quote unquote balance sheet to do that. And it's very, you know, it's not expensive, but it will cost you know the equity holders quite a bit to go out and raise ten to twenty billion. Funding secured. <laughs> Weston, yes. Weston, what are you well, thinking for yeah. uh, for Tesla? Uh, yeah. All right, so Elon, if Elon Musk wants to, um, you know, do a clever little um, 
out in the out in the plain open IRS like you know inviting the IRS like on his to look through his tweets um, <laughs> that, that, fine that's you know that's not that's not really that material if they do an equity raise what scares me about that something like that or even suggesting something like that is that the markets have been as of late have been so um driven by options like options activity especially um on tesla um you know like so like occ data from just just last week we saw last week as the second uh highest on record for you know options trading volume the first being you know memes meme week from the end of january um and you know it's i mean it's that those are very fragile markets to just be balancing on you know some some dealers gamma exposure um that's what the entire you know that's what the entire s p 500 is, is basically relying on and so and if the poster boy of that is tesla and you have um just a, a string of let's say just limit orders and you know uh you know gamma experts that, that just get hit and you know these like flips that happen it you know tesla can really snowball the rest of the, the global equity market for that matter you know just one stock and one like horrible um vol execution um so it's really fragile and and a news headline like that i mean it could just be the algos that do it it doesn't even matter what the what the you know initial sort of spark is that gets that going but um i think that um markets trend largely higher um because everyone is taking you know not everyone but people are starting to take like short positions on single stocks and long the equity long the index and so that's why you're seeing this sort of slow drift up in spx slow drift down in VIX and all that, but it's being hinged on this powder keg of options, like, uh, you know, uh, outstanding that Tesla itself could could be blown up or can blow up the the rest of them. And so I think it's really fragile. So this yeah, reminds it, me, it, by the way, completely of January 2018. I don't know if you guys remember. Everybody was shorting the XIV or buying the XIV every single day. We had literally the exact same setup in the markets where it just like went up every single day. Um, and then it was just one event where XIV basically couldn't take that selling where you had that volatility event. Very similar where we're derivative of another thing. Yeah. And to that point that um, that was made... I, I think it's really interesting that they're not that Elon didn't throw out the idea of you know putting fifty billion in debt on Tesla's balance sheet, using half of that for a special one-time dividend, and then using the twenty-five billion left on the balance sheet to find you know pay it in, in over the next ten to fifteen years. I mean that's yeah theoretic. That I mean that's a much cheaper way to do it, and you know doesn't blow up the stock either. Um, let's move on to some questions. We got a few minutes left. Uh, Andrew M from the exchange asks, Hey, Weston, what are you monitoring for this BTC and Ethereum run? Is it the yen, the Turkish lira, the S and P, the cycles of the moon, the various posts over time have been helpful. And I wanted to know <laughs> where Weston and Peter, uh, discuss their own approaches and brainstorm. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading that wrong. Anyway, what are your thoughts on, um, Bitcoin? What's driving, uh, kind of crypto markets right now? What are you thinking? Um, what a timely question. So, uh, in a few minutes, um, on the Real Vision YouTube channel, I will have a video publishing, uh, about this new driver of Bitcoin. Um, so just wait a few more, (laughs) more minutes. Um, what I will say though, however, is that this is something that is not new to the, uh, Real Vision exchange members. Um, it's Monix group. And so people, who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. That's basically back. 
Um, and who those who don't, uh, just watch the video. But keep a look at uh, Monix Group, which is a Japanese stock, 8698, um, and watch that stock gap up 20% uh, limit up for the last two days consecutively. Um, and if you look at the intraday price action, you'll see what is moving Bitcoin spot during Japan cash equity hours. Very interesting. Um, Samuel, any broad thoughts on crypto? Last time we talked, we were talking about crypto being a possible uh, you know, safe haven for capital flight from China. Uh, what are you thinking about it now? Uh, I, I still think it's a very useful uh, tool for uh, capital flight. Uh, and that's not just China. I mean, that's basically anywhere. But I think uh, now you're having a much, call it, uh, broader uh, acceptance of uh, DeFi generally, uh, which I think is quietly one of the significant drivers, particularly of ETH moving forward, uh, that we will have um, tokenized securities continue to become a larger and larger part of the trading model. Um, and the 24-hour ability to trade Tesla, for instance, is extremely interesting and extremely powerful. And something that if I were, and I think I said this last time, if I were Fidelity or Vanguard, I would be very, very scared of um, the continued rise of DeFi. So I think as we continue to see uh, applications prove uh, prove themselves, not just in you know as use cases, but as true daily um, actual um, Use cases that that's a that's a big deal, and that will yeah. continue to accelerate uh, adoption moving forward. Can, can I say something uh, about Ethereum too specifically? Um, I tweeted this out recently, but so Ethereum um, CME is going to be rolling out Ethereum Micro futures on December fifth, I believe. Um, and historically, if you look back, it's kind of funny because when CME rolls out Bitcoin, um, uh, the last top right. Yeah, so when they when they did that, when they did the original Bitcoin futures, um, you know, the, the larger contracts, that was, you know, that was top. And then when they did micros, uh, that was also top. But Ethereum is actually the other way around. Um, Ethereum sees a breakout for for futures. And what actually stopped the breakout from uh, the Ethereum futures was the introduction of uh, Bitcoin micros that came in. So uh, I'm not necessarily bullish on, you know, Ethereum micros per se, but uh, I think that that's just another step into getting a Ethereum futures-based ETF, which is going to run up the futures um, market um, in order for you know these ETF riders and the APs that are involved to you know kind of accumulate. And you're going to get that same sort of October 40% up move that you saw in Bitcoin uh, ahead of uh, you know this Ethereum futures uh, back ETF launch that will probably be coming uh, shortly thereafter. So for that reason, I would be bullish. Yeah. Cool. Um, we got one more question. I think we covered a lot of the, uh, we answered a lot of different questions, but there's one really interesting one from the exchange. And I actually want to direct this one to Samuel as a last kind of signing off question. Remain Calm asks, my family runs a small business in Florida. Most of our staff is hourly and we have watched wages rise from 10 to 13 to $15 since COVID to keep the team together. Should I expect to be paying $20 an hour soon in 2022 or in 2023? What do you think, Samuel? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think that's it, it's twenty dollars an hour, um, but you should also be able to raise price. Um, I do think that if you have a business that has pricing power, um, you will have the ability to raise price without a significant issue, because it's not just you that will be raising price, you raising wages to twenty dollars an hour. It's going to be everybody who needs an extra employee. Um, 
So yes, uh, if you want good employees, it's going to be more expensive uh, tomorrow than it is today. Very good. Um, Weston, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for watching. Thank you for your questions. Really appreciate it, everybody. Have a beautiful day, and we'll see you tomorrow. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.